Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives, both professionally and personally, in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. My guest today is the Global Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Pekin. She is an international multi-award winner for her services to diversity, inclusion and tech industry. She's seen as one of the most influential women in UK tech. Yet she came from such humble beginnings, being adopted at three weeks old in Sri Lanka by a white family and then moving to Ireland. And we just delve into how she came from growing up in Ireland in a very small town, dealing with racism and being treated differently to where she currently is right now. She shares so much value around leadership, ego, parenting, relationships, and just navigating in a space that does not look like you whatsoever. We'll talk about gaming, um, and dogs. I mean, you're not going to get another podcast where in one breath we're talking about Spider Dragon, another breath we're talking about the Nobel Peace Prize, but you're going to have fun in this one. Let's delve straight into it. I have the pleasure of sitting down and talking to Sheree. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. It's been, it's good talking to you, um, especially after your your mini break, you're, you're back now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. I am, I am. <laughs> How, um, you're currently working for um, Pekin as a global director of diversity. How is that going? And actually, why did you decide on Pekin? I'm sure you had a lot of offers coming your way. I did, which was quite a nice position to be in. <laughs> and a very privileged position to be in, in the middle of a global pandemic, to have so many offers and be able to pick which one really aligned with me and what I wanted to do. And so it's my it's the end of my third week now. So um, and I had seven weeks off. So I'm still getting used to being back into work after having a quite a nice break. But it's really really good that my role sits across all of our regions. So firstly, Pecon is an employee experience platform where we help people and companies listen intelligently um, to their organizations, really understanding you know what is working for people, what isn't, and then providing different suggested actions and um, education around how you can ultimately make it better. And so I sit um, at a senior leadership level, um, 50% basically working internally on our own DE&I, um, and I will be sharing our first diversity, equity and inclusion report in a few months. I think I've just finished the strategy, so I'm aiming to share it in a, in a little while externally for everybody to see. Um, I am super transparent about all of the stuff that I do in any company, and I think that's a really important part of inclusion, that you share um, what you're doing, the gaps that you have, how you're trying to fill them, what realistic goals you're trying to achieve. Um, because one, it shares successes and best practices. But two, it also holds you to account from an external perspective because society will hold you to account these days. And that's a good thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying that people are certainly feeling more empowered to speak and then to be heard. 
Um, and then the other half of my role is actually working with our 1,000 plus clients globally, helping them with their DE&I, helping them bring to life their strategies using our Include product, which is a DE&I product focused in on helping people understand how people feel from a diversity perspective, an inclusiveness perspective, a non-discrimination perspective, um, and actually helping them bring to life using the data and the perception data that we help them gather um, bringing it to life in a way that really does create strategic changes as opposed to just here's a load of numbers on a page what do you do with that and um, so yeah it's been it's been super interesting and really really exciting um, I'm having a good time so yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, how we keep going after after the next few months as well. So how do you deal with organizations who are not used to being so transparent? I think that I think there's a balance here in helping organizations. Firstly, you have to understand where the organization is coming from and I guess the typical way that they operate. Um, some organizations are less transparent because of, for example, DEI is a more of a competitor piece and it's a worry to expose themselves. Now, do I agree with that mindset? No. Um, but it's important in understanding the perspective regardless. What I think is important then is to show why transparency is so important. When we hide behind or we hide behind values or lofty statements, we are not really making a difference and we are not being very, very honest. And half of the reason we're in the predicament that we are in right now is because of a lack of honesty and a lack of transparency. Um, and we can use a perfect example is, for example, how in the UK, we are grouping people um, and people of colour, for example, in the terminology of BIM, so Black, Asian, Minority Ethnics. Now, I have a really big problem with that. And you'll see in previous reports I've shared and in the, the PECON one that's coming out, um, I think it's important that you report overall your BAME um, breakdown. But what I think is more important is that you actually break it down per those different groupings and for the census data because otherwise you're not painting a very fair picture. Um, because let, even in the instance of people of colour representation and black people representation in, let's say, London versus somewhere like Northern Ireland is very, very different. And you have to paint that picture. But if you don't do that, you're not being honest, which means we then have companies saying things like, oh, we have 25% BME in senior leadership. But what we're actually saying is we have 20% Asian people and, and um, maybe one or two black people, if you're lucky. And that's, and that's a problem. And transparency and that level of granularity is really, really important because otherwise, how do you fix something if you don't know where you're at? And also the people that are coming into your organization and wanting to join, wanting to be part of your mission, don't know where you're at. It feels very disingenuous to me. Um, and I think taking people on that journey, helping them understand the benefits to them too, because again, you can't unearth problems if you don't unearth the problem. <laughs> um, so you're wasting your time, you're wasting efforts whenever you could be doing something really meaningful. Um, and again, when I'm capturing this data and when I'm taking organizations on this journey, um, I do suggest capturing data across all different characteristics like ethnicity, gender, neurodiversity, disability, and so on and so forth. Not every organization is in a position to do that. So it's about helping them hone in on what their focuses need to be to make a strategic impact first. And usually that will be gender and ethnicity. The and ethnicity part is still quite a big jump for people even right now, which is still baffling to me. Um, but I think the, 
useful thing for people is when they have someone like me who has done this for years and done it very successfully for years is listening to best practice. But it is a journey for people, absolutely. And it's one I think a lot of organizations are still going on. So you just mentioned that the diversity part is a lot of companies are still struggling with that. Even in this in this day and age that we're currently going through right now, how do you talk leaders through that piece and how do you personally handle it? <laughs> there will always be people that don't get don't get this. Okay. And I think I always caveat that at the start because I know a lot of people try or I guess a lot of people expend so much energy on the people that really don't get it that they're exhausted. And when I say exhausted, I mean like brain tired, emotionally exhausted, spent, all of those things. What I think is really important is helping people understand how it has worked and why it works and what you need to do. Now, I think for me, what I do is I, I, I tend to describe people in terms of their what's the word, their engagement with the E&I um, is sort of either they're cold, which means they really don't get it. They're actually a detractor and they're against the mission. They're lukewarm, which means, you know, they don't care either way, but they're not taking anything away from it. They're not actually causing any harm or positive. They're really bought in. They're really trying to make things better. Now, if you can at least get cold people to lukewarm, then they're at least not damaging. Now, it's very easy usually to move lukewarm people to hot through data analysis, through showing them the successes of other people in the industry, to proving even from the business perspective, the benefits and how that links into your business strategy if you're trying to grow and all those other things. But the cold people, what's really important is understanding their perspective as to why they're so against it. Now, what you'll usually find is that that's based on how they have been raised, the upbringing they have had and the people that have surrounded them as they've grown up and then therefore um, continue to, I guess, embody and encapsulate the type of behaviours that they have seen that have been acceptable to them in their remits, but certainly are not acceptable in a wider society piece. So, for example, if you are raised, um, and I think financial and socioeconomic background is a huge part of inclusion. And as someone who grew up in free school meals and is well aware of what that means like to be in that environment, um, when you grow up in an environment where you haven't had that worry or you haven't had that environment where your family struggles or you actively are aware of what money means, <laughs> which is a really big thing to not have to worry about, that shapes how you think about things. It shapes what you think opportunity means and how difficult to get opportunity is for you versus someone else. Now, if you continue to embody and I guess take in that view as you go through the working environments that you're in, you move into leadership and C-suite, etc. How does that influence how, who you hire and why you hire them? Because if you're still believing that, oh, well, anybody can do this because I did it without actually accepting the fact that you've had a huge amount of privilege and benefit from your parents' wealth, then you're really being very disingenuous. And I think that's a, it's a big part in understanding people's backgrounds. And quite a lot of the work that I do with senior leadership in the industry is really taking people on that journey and it is really difficult for some people because it is eye-opening um, and it's, it's complicated for people for sure but I think it's one that's very very needed. So recently I've been having a conversation around the business case for diversity, you know, McKenzie, HBR, Boston Consulting Group, all that and the conversation I was having was why do we keep on reeling out this report year on year when one data is there but people have ignored it but two, isn't that also feeding into part of the problem? Why should you have to justify a case for diversity when 
it's just basic human common decency and common sense. Yeah, and it is basic human common decency and common sense, but also people like money. And the problem is that people like us and people who care about this stuff really do genuinely care. Does everybody care in the way that we do? No. And that's a problem, yes. That's a wider human problem because people, and I always say this, people are inherently selfish. Okay, we know that. And you have to challenge that in yourself. I know, like, even myself, I would never claim to have, you know, everything I do is perfect because it's absolutely not. (laughs) But I challenge that in myself and I spend a lot of time, like, making sure, even when I'm talking to my partner, if there are things that someone says that I don't agree with, I sit back and I have to think, I might do I not like that because of this reason or that? And I spend that, I guess, that batting that back and forth with myself to make sure I'm not being inherently selfish, etc. But people are like that. And so we have to understand as well that as much as it would be fantastic for everybody to care that we need to do this, because like you said, it is human decency. It is simply not acceptable that people from marginalized groups have less opportunities simply because of those different traits. However, not everybody thinks that way. Now, we can try and take people on that journey, and we do do that. But one way to engage those cold people, like I mentioned, is the business benefit piece. And I think it is important genuinely as well to actually talk about the business benefits of this too, because there are, like you've touched on the McKinsey piece, etc. There are so many business benefits to this. And I think that is a big part of inclusion as well and again understanding that for you to grow in a healthy way you should be prioritizing this otherwise you're not doing your job right yeah i can see where you are coming from with that now based on the experience that you've had being a senior leader yourself as well as working with a lot of leaders and organizations what would you say makes a good leader i write about this a lot i did a forbes piece on this not too long ago and i think for me So I describe my leadership technique as firm but empathetic. So I'm very direct. um, I'm very, I guess, I don't like to say blunt, (laughs) but (laughs) probably a little bit blunt, um, but always empathetic um, in that even when I'm delivering very difficult or bad news, my aim and goal is still to make sure someone doesn't feel bad about this or understands the process or is I'm being as transparent as possible and feeling it from their perspective as well and what I think really good leadership is is vulnerability firstly I think for you to be a good leader and be able to direct people with a vision and help them and have them sorry want to bring that vision to life you have to be vulnerable now that means being vulnerable about your own successes and growth areas and what you're doing to fill those but also the mistakes that you may have made in the journey. Um, we see a lot, you know, I, I personally hate the, the phrase, what is it, like um, the hustle culture that we see. I hate that word. Um, it makes me cringe a lot. But we see this hustle culture that is embedded into technology, for example, and we see all the big, big wins, but we don't see an awful lot of the actual feels and the things that haven't went well and the things that have been really difficult. So then people view leadership as this unattainable thing because they've had mistakes and they're like, well, I could never do that because I've messed up so many times. I mean, I can't even keep count of how many times I've messed up. But the the point is, I'm still a senior leader and I'm very good at what I do. So vulnerability is really important. The second thing I think which is important is, is empathy and being able to really, really listen to people. Now, 
and this is one of the reasons why I came to PCON as well, because I've used the product and it really enables that two-way listening between everybody in a psychologically safe way. But as a senior leader and a leader or in middle management, whatever, being able to listen and not listen facetiously in that, oh, I hear what you're saying, I'll see you later. But actually, I hear what you're saying, let me take this away, let me think about it and let me see what makes sense. The answer that you may come back with, like I said, may be difficult news and you deliver that empathetically or it may be a change of heart or whatever it is that we're, we're talking about. But being able to listen and being willing to be wrong is a really big thing. Quite often we see in leadership, there is the assumption that leaders are always correct. Therefore, we shouldn't challenge. Now, that's just silly because humans are wrong all the time and being in leadership doesn't change the fact that you are a human. So ergo, you're going to be wrong some of the time. But you have to be willing to be told, actually, this wasn't what I needed right now or this didn't land the way you thought it was going to. And then the third thing I think that's really important is remembering that intention and impact are not the same thing. And they do, if they do not align, that is on you. So your intention as a leader may be that you're doing something that you think this is really, really good. This will really help people. I think this is what they need. If the impact on those people is that it's actually damaging, it's hurtful, you've done it the wrong way, et cetera, it doesn't matter if your intention was good. The impact is still negative. And you have to, as a senior leader, sit back and actually take a breather, because I know it's very easy to get defensive when that happens. But to sit back and actually think, okay, why did this not land? Did I listen enough? Did I actually hear what people wanted or did I make assumptions? Is my expertise telling me actually that what I'm doing is correct in this small, this group of people or whatever maybe aren't? And do I need to take them on a journey to really engage them more? But spending that time to sit back and really engage in that way is incredibly important. And again, remembering that if your impact and your intention don't line up or your intention and impact don't line up, that it's on you to do that work, not those other people and not the people that you're ultimately trying to lead. You have that responsibility as a leader. I subscribe to that model and that's something I do when I work with my clients. However, I'm also very aware of that. It doesn't come natural and easy to a lot of people. A lot of leaders don't have that ability to, to self-reflect or have that self-awareness to take a step back. And there's also that ego that tends to be in the room as well. So how do you, how did you develop that ability for yourself as a senior leader? And how did you help the leaders do the same? Yeah, I, th I think there is always egos in every room. <laughs> um, and ego is, is something like that really frustrates me as well. Cause I always see a, like confidence and ego are two different things. I am very confident, but do what I say I have an ego, maybe somebody else would say that I do, but <laughs> I, I try my best not to, but, and I, I really challenge myself to make sure I don't cross that line. But ego, I view ego as a real barrier to progress and a real barrier to business growth, because it means that you have to spend time massaging someone's feelings to get something done as opposed to just getting it done. And I think, um, for myself, being able to grow into, I guess, the kind of leadership that I think that I that I know I do well, and I obviously can do things better as well. But um, I've spent a lot of time on self reflection, to be honest. Um, I I did not have an easy upbringing, so I was adopted when I was three weeks old from Sri Lanka um, by a white family in Ireland, and I'm very very privileged to have done that or have gotten been adopted because it's given me all the benefits of the Western world. I've been able to go to university. I've been able to have food every night and have a pillow to sleep on. Um, but the, and, you know, 
I now have a partner who I can comfortably talk about. We're married. We're both heterosexual people. Um, but I think that growing up was not easy um, in a place that is very, very white. So, for example, Northern Ireland, like I said, has 2% um, of the community is from Black, Asian or minority ethnic backgrounds. So it is very undiverse. Now, I'm from a, that's even like Northern Ireland as a whole. I'm from rural Ireland, um, which is um, even more Undiverse, and certainly in the nineties, um, it's different now because of immigration, etc. Um, but back then, it wasn't. And my brother, who is also adopted um, from Sri Lanka, there weren't many people of color in the town that we grew up in. Now, everybody loves the cute brown baby when it's cute, but when you grow up, then the racism hits you right in the face, <laughs> and um, that changes how you view yourself when you are always the only, like you are always the only brown person in the photo like in the school photos you know the, the ones you get in secondary school the big long photo of the entire school and it was always very easy to find me and my brother because we're the only two brown faces <laughs> in the entire picture now that sounds funny but whenever you actually get into you know when you become a teenager and you start to grow up and then again the racism hits people treat you differently because of that now me and my brother faced a lot of racism growing up we were called the n-word we were shouted at in the streets we were treated differently my brother used to work in a nightclub and people would call him a monkey and things like this and I think what's really important here to note is I like I'm I have dark skin but my brother is notably darker than me like much much darker than me and it cannot be forgotten that colorism has played a huge part in how we're both treated because I don't face the same overt racism that he still faces in his life and we're both 29 now um but I am much lighter skinned than he is. And I think that's an important point. Um, but I think when you grow up in that kind of environment, and then when you, I used to be a software engineer, when you come into the tech industry and you're also the only woman, ergo the only woman of color, and then you, you sort of move forward in a way where you're still always the only, I think that shapes a more humbling approach to leadership. Because for me, I view leadership as a very, very big privilege. It's a huge privilege to have, a voice that people want to listen to and that do actively listen to. And I remember the point in my career at the start, whenever people, when I would speak, they would talk over me. Whereas now when I speak, everybody shuts up. <laughs> and I remember the point in, like about four or five years ago, or maybe slightly longer, like six years ago, where that happened. And I remember coming home to my partner and being like, this is different because I know that those people, those are the same people who a number of years ago did not care what I was saying. Whereas now they are sitting back in their chair, folding their arms and listening. And that's a privilege. And I am incredibly privileged to have that. And I think that's why the kind of leadership that I talk about is really important to me, because I know what it's like not to be listened to. I know what it's like to be underrepresented in some way. Now, do I know what it's like to be, for example, a black woman in the industry? Of course I don't. And that experience is much, much different than mine as an Asian woman. And I think that has to be noted as well. And so a big part of the role that I play now and as a senior leader is to make sure that I am, one, listening to all of the different voices around me, making sure that we are not forgetting about those who are neurodiverse, who are disabled, who are from different sexual orientations and so on, and making sure that I am not creating the same problems that leaders before me have done. But then also amplifying those voices as well um, that are, you know, the Cherie that I was seven or eight years ago, um, because it simply isn't just about me. It's, and that's why the work that I do with women who code is so important, 
because it has been about creating a new generation of women leaders across the globe from all different backgrounds. And I've worked with them for, I think, seven or eight years now and built up their UK expansion, built up remote teams, built up leadership and continue to now sit at a senior leadership level where I do that globally for them, really driving people towards that organisation. Because it's not about me. I won't live forever, nor do I want to. And the point is that if I if I don't leave it better than I found it, and I found it in a kind of rubbish way, to be honest, um, if I can make it even marginally better in the circles that I am in, then I'm doing something good. Um, and that maybe sounds kind of fluffy, but I do think it's really important. And I do think that that kind of awareness comes from having very different lived experience my entire life so yeah I know that's quite a long answer to what you asked but yeah no it was it was the the way you just described it all kind of fits in all brings in together and as you were talking I was thinking how did you navigate dealing with racism in in Northern Ireland and then obviously going throughout your career like you just said at 22 you were speaking up and they were ignoring you but you kept on going and you kept on pushing and you didn't you didn't stay silent yeah how did you get that courage to keep on pushing regardless of being marginalized yeah so I think the first first point of your question around growing up in in Northern Ireland and dealing with racism is that you get very used to it um like you I remember so me and my brother went to different schools I went to a Catholic grammar school and he went to an integrated school so in his school, there was a lot more actual diversity of different demographics because it was an integrated school. It wasn't a faith-based school. So there was lots of different religions represented and stuff like that. Um, but we both, like opposite ends of the town, and we would both walk up to the town. And there was an area that he could not walk past because every time he would walk past there, even with his friends who were pr- primarily white, um, another school would shout racist abuse at him. They would call him the N-word. They would like walk behind him and call him monkey and all these other things. Um, until he would get up to the town and then he felt safer because he was in obviously a very public space. Now, you get used to that behaviour because he then just basically decided, I'll just walk the long way from now on. Uh, That's rubbish. And um, you get used to, you know, whenever you then start to grow up and people start treating you differently because you don't look like the people that they are, you know, find attractive and how that then makes you feel incredibly low because you're like, well, I will never look like those people because... I mean, I'm an entirely different ethnicity, so what am I going to do about that? But it's more than just obviously attractiveness. It's in about opportunity and so on and so forth. But I think uh, you get used to being treated in that way and it becomes part of the norm. What I will say is my dad does not take any rubbish and he st- like spent a lot of time fighting against people um, physically as well as mentally <laughs> when they would say stuff about us. And he does not take any prisoners um, and th- like he... I remember whenever we were adopted and he went, um, my mother and him went back to where he is from in, in Ireland. And one of his aunts had said, oh, could you not have got them in a lighter color? And he was like, what the mm, did you say about my children? And um, he never spoke to her again. He didn't go to her funeral when she died. He was like, that's not part of my life anymore. That's it. And um, like she reached out because they were actually quite close. She reached out quite a lot um, throughout his life and he was just like, nope, that's not happening. Um, and he, he's had conversations with that about people and he's had, you know, a lot of people making comments again about him adopting brown children and stuff. And he just does not suffer fools lightly. Um, he may have broken a few jaws in his time <laughs> um, because he just 
he doesn't play he doesn't play that game and you know I'm very I wouldn't say lucky because that's what he should be I wouldn't condone violence but um it's his job to protect his children and he did that and but I think when it comes when you mentioned there I guess being in an environment where you are marginalized and you have to speak up and you're not listened to um I spent a lot of time so when I when I launched Women Who Code so background of Women Who Code is they are the world's largest nonprofit globally dedicated to women in tech and we have over now 230,000 global members and we run free monthly meetups in all of our locations for women and non-binary folk to come together to learn from the specialists on the skill sets that are being hired in their area and also create a sense of community belonging and all of those kinds of things that are really important and when I launched or when I wanted to launch Women Who Code in the UK, so it started off with its base really in San Francisco. And when I started out with leadership there, there were only 5,000 members globally. So lots of expansion. Um, when I wanted to bring them across the UK, I got a lot of friction, I guess, from people who, whose view was, well, I tried to do something similar and it didn't work. Or, well, why would somebody listen to her versus me when I've been in the industry for however many years and she's just graduated and is a software engineer? Was that from men and women or, sorry to... Both. Yeah, both. Um, actually, quite a lot from women as well. And I think that comes from feeling threatened and insecure. I also don't actually care <laughs> if someone feels that way about what I'm trying to do because the, the point was that there was a bigger bigger goal here than like I said massaging egos and it got to the point for me there was a lot of times where I, I remember because I was with my partner then too where I came home and you know he would come forward to visit and I would say I was like why am I doing this because these are the people that ultimately will decide like because they were the big players then it's like they would decide whether I am going to be successful or if I'm going to get promoted they're going to decide that um how can I keep you know pushing against them and I, I sort of went back and forth with myself. And then I just realized, you know, if I don't try something, my name is attached to this. At this stage, I had, like it had been in the press. I was doing all of these really great things that people like me didn't do. And I was like, I cannot waste the fact that I have all of this energy around something. I have to at least try. And I wouldn't lie and say that it's always been easy and that I still don't get people to like, still don't get people who are, I guess, a thorn and don't like what I do or feel like they can do it better. But honestly, I just don't care anymore. <laughs> and I got to the point where I just didn't care anymore because what I am doing, um, I'm being able to, and I think you cannot care about what people like that are saying and still be willing to be wrong. And I'm very much in that space. But I know I'm good at what I do. I don't have an awards cabinet because I'm rubbish at what I do. I don't have, I'm not a global director at 29 because I'm rubbish at what I do. Do you know what I mean? We're not playing games here. I don't have a book deal at 29 because I'm I'm really bad at my job. So the, like, there's times here where I sit back and I say this to people when people always ask, what's your biggest piece of advice is to always be aware of what you do and do well. How can you talk about how good you are at something if you actually don't know it yourself? And that's why I know I can just say, I'm good at this. And this is why I'm good at this. Because that honing that confidence is really important. Now, honing in a way that's really important and also being willing to still be wrong is more important. But you should always be your biggest fan because there will always be people that will not get your mission. That is powerful. Um, and the reason I'm going to say that is, especially in the UK, we don't tend to talk a lot about our achievements. And it's seen as, oh, you're, you're being you're being proud, you're, you're bragging, you're being arrogant. Yeah. But actually, you need to speak up about yourself and you need to be like, I've done this, I'm good at this. Yeah. A lot of people in the States especially, they do it a lot. 
And that's just normal and natural to them. Whereas in the UK, we're a lot more reserved and conservative. But what you just said is so important. It's like, actually, I'm doing this because I'm good at this. And this is my area of specialities. So therefore, and the more you can amp yourself up, forget everyone else. If you can do it for yourself, do you have that confidence to go ahead and do things that you're talking about and things that you're doing? Yeah, and I think it's really important. And I deliver, like training as well on empowering yourself to empower others as I think it's a really powerful tool when you are confident enough in yourself when you are confident enough to be able to say this is what I'm really good at and these are the things I need to get better at to be able to then set that tone set that environment and I do that quite a lot I guess I use myself and the way I speak and how I deliver messages to set a tone for other leadership to make it easier for them to do it um, and so on and I think that's a really really powerful thing and I do agree that we we are conditioned to be quite, especially people from underrepresented backgrounds. And again, there's a lot of cultural elements that pay, play into this, but I do think we're conditioned to be, I guess, modest to a fault, like modest to the extent that you're just like not willing to talk about yourself, but are willing to hype up other people. And I'm like, hype up both, hype up yourself and hype up other people. You know, there's no room for, there's plenty of room for, for, for everybody. Have you found it navigating male-dominated leadership teams? Um, at this stage, I'm very well used to it. <laughs> and, and it doesn't phase me anymore because as, hard, as rubbish as it sounds, it is the default. And it's the default because of the things that I've, t- I've talked about already that we've gotten to this position. At the start of my career, it was very daunting to me. Probably slightly overwhelming as well because one of the things that I, I am always, not anymore, but I used to be really, really worried about was that the people in the leadership teams that either before I was in leadership that I was presenting to and stuff did not speak like I speak, did not come from backgrounds that I come from, do not like have similar backgrounds to me. Like these are people that were, you know, either born wealthy or speak very eloquently. And like people have made comments on my accent. I know I have a very thick accent. It's not changing anytime soon, but and I like that you're shaking your head, but people have made comments on that. And it was something I had a really big, like, I don't know, worry about, because a lot of the people, what well, certainly when I was um, doing things, and I still, because I have my own consultancy business, um, doing things with big corporates and stuff, it's not an issue now because of who I am and the work that I do. But back then, before all of that, the people that I was leading um, and were in rooms with were predominantly people with, you know, very, I guess, London-based accents. And my accent is not that game. Do you know what I mean? It's not happening. And um, the... The problem was that people would view me as less intelligent because of my accent, because of the assumption of where I came from, etc. And there was just no, there's no relatability for me with a lot of people because, like, I remember whenever um, my dad telling me stories when we were adopted that, like, they ran out of money and he had to go to the pharmacy and say that he would do some favors for the pharma- pharmacist to get some milk bottles and was coming up the road, he was super proud to be able to get these things, and he was doing something for the guy later to pay him back because he didn't have money at the time. And it was like, there are people that just cannot, like, comprehend how that must feel. And um, I think when you when you go into leadership positions and you, you're surrounded by people that are very different to you, sometimes that can be very daunting, and it can be very overwhelming because it feels like these people are just not going to get what I'm talking about or even the fact that this is an experience now given the the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and and the whole host of black folks that we have seen that have been murdered not just this year not just last year and years and years ago but we're now seeing people and mostly non-black folks saying things like oh 
I just didn't know that that was a thing or I can't believe that's happening. Like, how did you not know? We're not paying attention. What, what is shocking about this? And it's because there's this huge disconnect because of your bubble. And if you don't put yourself, you don't burst your own bubble and go out and listen to other voices, then then you're just totally disillusioned and disconnected. But the the thing with working in environments that have people that are not used to you, what I do now is I spend quite a lot of time in those environments, obviously. And um, I make it known that, you know, I'm aware that there are people here that will not have the same. And I just make it very clear up front that, you know, we are very different people, but this is what I need you to do. And I'm very direct about that now um, because allies are incredibly important. And now if I don't have the backing or the support of senior people also in the organization it's very very hard to change things it's very very hard to push against and do things differently if let's say the ceo is just like i don't actually care um and that's very important because most ceos as we know are white heterosexual financially stable men so we can't disengage with those people nor do i want to but they also have to be aware that there's a huge amount of growth and i've just i've spent spend time with quite a lot of ceos having to take them on that growth journey of really understanding what does it mean to be in the industry when you are not someone like you? And what does it mean for people coming into the industry now that are not someone like you? Because it is still very different. Let's say most CEOs are within like the 35 to 50 age group. That's a generation change, you know what I mean? So it's 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 really important to bring them on that journey. But yeah, um, it's not always been easy, but it's easy now. <laughs> Have you had... Um mentors along your journey i have i have and i think i've been i'm very lucky to have some people that have been really pivotal in my journey and i think i, ha I have sort of sponsors more than mentors um, and a sponsor is someone who's actively advocating for you in the room when you're not there calling out your name saying oh she would be the best person for that opportunity um and so on and so forth and there's one woman I always reference and I was doing an interview yesterday as well and I referenced her again and there's a part of my book that I'm there's a I wouldn't say a full section because that would be kind of creepy but um, a few paragraphs dedicated to her as well um who's and her name is Jackie Henry and she's a senior partner at Deloitte um where I, I used to hold senior leadership positions on DE&I and Jackie is also from NI um she was also adopted um, by, and she's white, but was adopted by a white family. Um, and she started off there as an accountant and now as a senior partner overseeing one of the biggest parts of the business, defining their whole people and purpose agenda across the consulting practice. And what Jackie did and what's incredibly import important that sponsors do in particular is listen and listen really, really well. And I know I keep saying that, but it's really important. And she spent the time understanding with me um, what did I want and how did I how did I see myself getting it? And then understood how she could, you know, slot in to help me get that thing. So it was never Jackie's journey. It was always mine. She was just simply, I guess, you know, when you play, I think like Mario Kart and you go across the things that make you go faster. She was the things that made me go faster. <laughs> but it was never her journey. It was still my journey. It was my lap. It was my race. Um, I can't believe I just used Mario Kart in that analogy. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, like it's a perfect analogy for what I mean. But the... The point is that she, she always sat in the background, but was always sort of just pushing me and nudging me forward, but also being willing to tell me, actually, these are ways that we can do it differently because she's been in the business like 35 years. Um, she's an MBE. She's done a whole host of things. Um, so being able to have that relationship with her has been incredibly important. And I still catch up with her now every month, even though I'm not in Deloitte anymore. But 
having that kind of relationship and having that kind of, I guess, really active sponsorship has been incredibly important in my career. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly very lucky to have had that. I want to ask about the other person who's also been very important in your life that you've mentioned, which is your partner. Yeah. How did you guys, um, how did you guys meet and how much of an impact has he had on you? Um, we, we, so my partner, Sean, um, we've been married for three years together, nine, just past nine, I think in August. Um, I sometimes get that wrong. <laughs> There's too many dates to remember at this stage, but um, we, we met back home. Um, and so I'm, I'm 29 and Sean is turning 33. So back when you're younger, that's quite a big age gap. So when I was 14, he was like 17, 18, depending on the month. And um, so we'd seen each other in the same time, but obviously never spoke because it'd be kind of weird for a 14-year-old and an 18-year-old to be friends and in the same circle but we listened to a lot of the same music um, and had a lot of the same friend circles sort of separately um, and then I started going to university and he had just when I had started university he had just finished and um, I seen him when I was out one night and I, I, I probably had a few too many drinks and went up to talk to him <laughs> and um, we started chatting and then we like we started messaging on Facebook whenever people did that this is before WhatsApp as well so please don't judge me and um, I remember because he's from back home as well and his family um, has two farms. So he used to help his dad quite a lot on the, on the farm. And I remember I'd send him messages and then like it wouldn't be until maybe 10 o'clock that night. He would send me back this huge paragraph, paragraphs of messages whenever he finally got signal again because he wasn't up in the, the hills. There's no signal. And um, yeah, and then we just kind of hit it off. We're very similar, but also very different, which I know is, sounds kind of silly, but I am very... Um, driven in a way that you know I'm laser focused with almost everything to sometimes to a fault Um, I also get stressed a lot and he is very laid back in the best way in that like if we were both the same as me we would just be frazzled all the time (laughs) and if we were both the same as him we would just never get anything done so there's a good balance of both um and so he's he's a user experience designer um and has been doing that for god knows how many years now but um yeah, we moved up to Bel or we were in Belfast together and then we moved over to London a few years ago because I was traveling quite a lot and made sense to move. Um, but yeah, I think the big thing with having a supportive partner is that, that I see people that don't have supportive partners and it's a barrier and it's a, I guess, like a door stopper. It stops you getting to where you need to go because you're always worried about ego. Yet again, here we're talking about ego. And I think a lot of the time when we see unsupportive partners, it is about ego and insecurity. And I don't have time for that. And um, I don't have time for someone who needs their ego stroked all of the time. I just, I simply don't have the time, nor do I have the energy for it. And I think having a supportive partner and like, Sean is always willing to do whatever it takes. He knows how important my career is to me. Like if it means moving, if it means like I'm going to leave a job and find something else, and he is always that, I guess, that constant um, and that, I guess, that support mechanism and that rock. Because there are times where it's difficult, where, like, I am super stressed. I'm doing too many things. And if I didn't have that, I think I would just spiral. Um, and I have burnt out in the past. I don't want to do it again. Um, and, yeah, I think having someone like that, that I always say the thing that I love about Sean is that he he – he doesn't need to help me, but he wants to. He always wants to help. He always wants to do something that, like, 
he always wants to look after me and I don't need someone to do that but him wanting to do that and him doing that because he really cares I think is a really important thing that's beautiful when you think back to the days of you playing Spyro the Dragon (laughs) (laughs) I mean I was playing the new one when it came out not that long ago (laughs) to what you're doing right now what changed or has that journey always been what you had in your mind from those days to where you are right now like I remember playing Spyro the first ever Spyro and um then and I know it's not relevant but the new one came out and it's the remastered version I remember looking it up uh, and seeing like it was just triangles on a screen like just literally triangles that moved and um I still find that so funny but I guess I I never knew I was going to do the stuff that I, that I did. Like I, I always imagined I would probably have a very normal career or life or whatever. Like I didn't ever really plan to, you know, travel the world speaking at like amazing conferences. Like I, the next conference I'm speaking at is the Nobel Peace Prize celebration in a month, in a few weeks. Like who from County Tyrone in Ireland does that? Nobody is the answer. Absolutely nobody. And writing for Forbes and doing all of this mad stuff. um, Like I never imagined I was going to do this stuff. But what I think whenever I started to realize maybe I could, maybe I could do something, maybe I'd do something quite small. Maybe I'd like, you know, make an impact, create a community in in Belfast and and kind of go from there. But I never thought I would then, you know, create a community across the entire UK, then going across Europe, then more and more and more. And I think when I look back to, you know, Cherie playing Spyro back all those years ago, I I don't think I, I would have expected anything like this. I probably would have expected, you know, to meet someone, get married, have a job back home and maybe that would be it. And I, and that's totally fine as well, if that's what I would have done. But I, I never expected that I would be, I guess, catapulted into the stuff that I do now. now. But I think that the reason why I've been able to, you know, continue to move and move very, very fast has been, I guess I didn't put barriers myself. People will always put barriers in your way for you. So don't do it to yourself. <laughs> but like at those moments where I guess I thought, oh, well, someone like me, doesn't do stuff like this why why would why should I do it why would they listen to me why would they want me to do that I've just kind of pushed that to the side and I guess opened that gate to make sure that maybe maybe they will though maybe they will want me to do that maybe they will want me to say that I should do it or speak or whatever it is and because of that I've just been able to continue to do these things so I don't know what I'm going to do next to be honest I could do with it like a a break (laughs) but yeah um, it's definitely been an exciting journey for sure but yeah I'm, I'm always excited to see what I'll do next sometimes it's like I didn't expect to sign a book deal this year I planned to do that much later but it's quite nice to have written a book before I'm 30 so I mean it's a good thing for the list do you know what I mean how was that process for you so I have at this stage I have one chapter left to write and I'm sort of aiming to get that done in the next next few weeks and then it's done then I don't have to write anymore and (laughs) god it's been really really cool like to be honest like I never thought I write a lot of like think pieces and blogs and stuff and thought leadership but writing a book is very different because when you when you write a blog people want to ultimately get the synopsis and get it quick get it like that they don't want to have to fuss but a book people want to digest every single sentence that's why they get it they sit down they you know make the most of that space and that time so it's writing in a different style and writing in a different way and it's been a journey you know 
figuring that that space out and I, I have a great editor so she reviews all of my works sort of after every two chapters and stuff and I have an editing schedule but the the experience has been super I guess hard to balance as well especially when you have a full-time job and you do global speaking tours and you have your own business and now you're writing a book and it's a lot on top of each other um but the seven weeks off that I had was you know very useful to get through that's so now because I only have one chapter left to write um but I'm super excited. Like, I think it's going to be amazing. Um, we we get a pre-order link in the next few months. Um, they're working on the cover design at the minute, so I can't wait to see that. And then just having, like, my book is going to be in, like, W.H. Smith and stuff like that. Like, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. But again, um, yeah, I just can't wait. I think it's super exciting. Like, I hope my dad isn't the only one to buy a copy. <laughs> what the book about? Um, demanding more for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, what it's really—I probably should have said that—it's um, really to help people understand what DEI means from the beginning, talking through the history and the historic things that have shaped where we're at today. Really delving into privilege and helping people open that conversation for themselves first, and then helping them understand how to engage senior leadership, middle management, and then actually planning and embedding inclusion into your into your work into your day to day and that's the, the really important part of it the book isn't just a business book it's about your day to day because quite often I think people think DE&I is like something you do in work I mean like no it's about how you live how you spend your money where you go who you associate with um, how you treat people around you um, who you warrant and view as important enough to listen to and who not to and that doesn't just mean in your office that means everywhere and um the book is really about expanding that out and also writing it in a way that people understand one of the things i really dislike is that quite a lot of books in this space use a lot of fluffy language and i hate that because my dad could never understand that why would he want to pick up that book but for this book my view is that like it's really powerful for people that are in business but also for those that aren't and want to just know what can i do as a person to you know leave things better than I find them. I can't wait to read it. Sounds... sounds yeah. Two copies of selling. <laughs> <laughs> you better get it down. You got the speech done, everything. Sorted. I've got to ask you, you're... I think I can't find a lot of pictures of you without Alfie. <laughs> but doesn't that know Alfie's, yeah. Alfie's, I'm sure he's 11-year-old. Doug, who was also the ring bearer at your at your wedding. He was. Yeah. Alfie Alfie plays a big part. I can't believe I'm talking about Alfie on a business podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Alfie is Alfie plays a, a big part in everything. Um as much as I was annoying that that may be. Um, but yes, he he he's down in the the office with my, my husband at the minute. But um we always describe Alfie as the glue that holds the family together because he is just that like doesn't matter what is going on in the world. Alfie is always ready to party. He is always ready to just have a good time or just chill out and let you pet him and relax. And I mean, like that's, again, another perfect constant to have in your life, even though he is also a bit of a brat too. You mentioned the fact that you had um, burnout before. You don't, now you're very focused, so to make sure it doesn't happen again. How do you, or what have you done to help you avoid that happening? Yes, I think to, to avoid burnout, you have to have a lot of self-awareness um, because otherwise you go down the spiral of not realizing until it's too late. Um, now, what I think is important is understanding your limits. And I don't just mean, like, I don't mean your limits on what you can achieve. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is your actual physical and mental and emotional limits um, and how much, how can you keep giving if you don't ever take anything, if you don't ever take time for yourself. And 
one of the things that's really important to me um, from a burnout perspective is that I never attach myself to wherever I work intrinsically. Like we have people where it's almost like a personality trait to work somewhere. And like I've been down that path where I have, you know, viewed a huge part of me as the place that I work. But I provide a service. They pay me for the service because I'm very good at it. And that's it. And I'm very invested in where I work and why. And I choose those places very carefully. But that is not a, a huge part of me as a person. It's where I work. And I think what's important is that people separate those things because otherwise there's no, where's the line? Where's the separation for you? Also, what happens if you leave and you feel like you lose this huge part of yourself? But I also think what it means is that when you have that like intertwined connection, that there are times that you will give so, so much because you care so, so much, whether that's incredibly late hours all of the time, whether it's, you know, working over deadlines, even though you don't need to, or setting that expectation, that then you forget about yourself and you forget that you're, you're paid to do that job. If you weren't doing it well, you wouldn't work there. And um, I, I make sure that I always separate those things because the things that are important to me are my family, are being able to, you know, have a life that I didn't expect that I was going to have and be able to, you know, enjoy all of those different things and to be able to make a difference. But it is not to prioritize work at every single step of the way. And I think that's that's the lesson I learned very early on. And I just, I'm very clear. That's why I said before we started recording, I finish at five or 5.30, depending on how, what time I start at. And that's it. Now, what I will say is my partner, if he comes in and he sees me that I'm still working, he's like, Sheree, why are you still on that computer? Turn it off. <laughs> so I have a check as well in case sometimes I slip because I get so enthralled. But yeah, I think it's important that you have that self-awareness in check, especially in leadership too, because you are role modeling the behavior that you want the rest of the business to have. So if you are doing those kinds of things, you're setting an expectation for everyone else. And that's simply not fair. It's a power play and power imbalance. And I don't like that. There's one question I want to ask you around this topic, which is um, how do you, if you're working in an environment where things aren't right and um, you want to speak up, but you are scared to do so, how do you get the courage? And I'm going back to you actually, what you did when you spoke about Munzo, for example, and you said, actually, with everything going on with, with BLM, my role's up. And you put it out there very, very publicly as well. And which a lot of people got encouragement from. And they were like, wow, that's absolutely amazing. But there are also a lot of people who are in organisations who want to speak up, but are scared to do so. So I'm trying to find out how you navigate that. I think what's important is that people look after themselves too. I think we, we forget a lot of the time that people are people and if something happens that doesn't feel right to you maybe you're not you don't feel privileged enough to be able to publicly talk about it or whatever else it might be and I don't really have anything to add to, to that what happened there but what I think is important that you you're able to figure out the best path forward for you now maybe that isn't in the organization that you are in and it is a huge privilege to be able to just be like I'm going to yeet myself out of here I'm going to do what I want and go and I know I'm able to do that because of the of, you know the interest and sector people have for me but what I would always suggest is that nothing is worth enough no, no, nothing and no job is worth you feeling bad all of the time nothing is worth you feeling like you're exhausted by coming into the office or that you feel like people just don't get you and no amount no amount of money and I know it sounds like a really silly thing to say and I can say that because I'm really well paid but no amount of money is worth you feeling like that all of the time. It's just simply not worth it. And I think what's important whenever people feel like they want to, you know, leave or speak up is 
it is not a bad thing either if you feel like like don't feel guilty if you feel like you can't speak up because you have to look after yourself and your own financial security and the people maybe that you look after and there is no shame in that but also remember that if you want to speak later that you can do that on your terms it is on your terms and that's what I think is really important here is that um you know it's it's not easy um but I think and I know certainly from my perspective, holding organizations to account is what is literally what I do. <laughs> it's literally my job in many, many ways. And um, I will always do that. So to wrap this up, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Um, what's the one thing that your dad has taught you that has stayed with you throughout? He does not take nonsense from anyone. And I mean absolutely no one like it doesn't even matter if (laughs) it doesn't even matter if that person is the wealthiest person in the world he does not give a thing he does not care and like he's now 69 so it's the 70th birthday next year and he's he's been very sick for a while and you know he's just always he will always just he's sick and um even now he still just doesn't doesn't care and he gets worse when he gets older he has no tact now so like he'll say things when he's in the hospital and i'm like dad you can't say that can you say it lower at least and he's like no, I will not. I'll say what I want. <laughs> so the good thing of that, I guess, that I've learned is that um, say what you want, but also say it respectfully when you can. <laughs> I wouldn't always suggest saying it in the way my dad says it. Um, but yeah, he just doesn't take nonsense. And I just don't take nonsense anymore. Um, and yeah, that was one thing I've learned from him. What are your three guiding principles or values that you live by? One, never accept disrespect. I never, and I, I got, I had to get to a stage where I was comfortable being able to do that. And it's a privilege again, but I do not accept disrespect from anybody. And I will make that very clear. And it ended, like when I was going through interviews and chatting to people and um, chatting to C-suite before I decided where I wanted to go, I said that in every interview, I'm like, never confuse me for someone you can disrespect because I will call you out and you'll either find it uncomfortable and you'll learn from it or you'll not and you'll do it again and I will leave. So I don't accept disrespect. Two is remember that you will probably be wrong sometimes or more than often, more, more often than not. Um, but you have to, you have, that has to be a principle, I think, to remember that you're not always right, even if you are really good at what you do. And I think the third one is remembering that what you need from an organization, for example, is just as important as what they need from you. So what do you need when you move to your new job or a new position? What is it that you really want to get? Is it like different growth areas, is it different opportunities? Is it being mentored by someone or led by someone with more experience than you and so on. But I think that's really important because quite often we see moving to somewhere, especially when you come from backgrounds like me, where you're so grateful just to be like, I can't believe I'm here and I'm earning this wage and I'm doing this, that you also forget that you're earning this wage and you're doing this because you're really good at it. So you're also allowed to have things that you want to. Music wise, what do you like listening to? I, I guess I listen to lots of different types of music. Um, I've always listened to metal and really like heavy metal. And that's um, one of the things I guess me and my partner have in common. And we before, you know, the world kind of, you know, took a collapse. Um, we would go to like gigs and stuff together quite a lot. But I also love like 90s boy bands like Westlife and like, um, <laughs> like I love Westlife so much. I don't think you can be an Irish woman and not love Westlife. So I think it's a rite of passage really. But um yeah, I, I like lots of different things. But yeah, most of the time I would listen to metal, yeah. That is heavy metal <laughs> Westlife. Like. Yeah, <laughs> give it a go, give it a go. It depends on the mood. It depends on the vibe that I'm trying to get into. Sometimes I still listen to, remember like S Club 7? Yeah. Sometimes I still listen to that because it's just happy, you know, and it's just good vibes. It's not, not, no problem. <laughs> 
What is the one piece of advice you wish someone gave you five years ago? One piece of advice that I wish someone gave me five years ago was to, um, it's okay to slow down as well. I move very, very fast. And, you know, that's worked out well for me so far. I've done a lot of great stuff. But that also means I've burnt out. That also means that I've had to, you know, find a balance in a, I guess, taking me longer to find a balance than I could have. And I think that's because I've always been really, keen to prove myself like this is what I can do I can do this well even though you think I can't and I've got to a position now where I don't need to do that anymore and I wish I had I guess that self-awareness later but I or earlier but I guess it's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know and when you're more junior in your career you're trying your best to scramble and you know make people not doubt you especially when you come from an underrepresented background in some way or another but I think that's really important advice is that it's okay to go at like a piece that isn't like Sonic the Hedgehog. You mentioned mistakes earlier on, and I want to find out what is the biggest mistake that you can say, you can share that you've you've made, and what did you learn from it? I think one of the biggest mistakes that I learned was whenever I started Women Who Code and I brought it across the UK, it was like my creation. Like I took it from nothing and I built it up. And at the start of that, when I was building out remote teams, I held on too tight. I held on too tight to like the people that I was empowering to be leaders to the extent that they felt, you know, what's that word, um, smothered by me. And again, I was 22 at that stage. I was still figuring things out and I just didn't want it to go wrong. But what I should have done was obviously, you know, sit back and be confident that I brought the right people on board. They were the right people because of X, Y, Z reasons. And what I learned from that was that it's important to recognize that you don't always have to be involved for it to be your success. So like I, I, I sponsor a lot of people in the industry and I mentor a lot of people and your success doesn't have to be directly linked into anything. Um, it can be simply that you're helping in the background, that you're providing guidance, that you're an over, overseeing it, your management, etc. cetera. Um, but you don't have to be in the nitty gritty every day. You don't have to be in the, you know, the operation sides of things. If you have people that you know can do that and um, because they want to do it and they will get the growth opportunity for that. And then they'll do get someone else to do it and so on and so forth. And I think that's a really important lesson is, you know, delegation. Any senior leader should be able to delegate well and know also when, you know, actually I'm not the right person for this, but this person is, and we should bring them in instead. And the last one would be, what would you want your legacy to be? My legacy. <laughs> I'm only 29. <laughs> Um, You've done a lot already, so. Yeah, I, th I think, and I was talking to Sean about this not that long ago, and I think one of the reasons I came to PCON was my legacy, to be honest. The work that we do affects already over a thousand customers, which is over thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Now, by creating an industry standard on how you measure inclusion and how you um, create successful strategic DEI strategies, we're changing an ecosystem. We're creating a, a way to do this and to do it well. And for me, with my legacy overall, like I want to look back and be able to say I made a sizable difference. Now, I do feel like I've done that with women who code even already and the other stuff that I've done. But I want to keep doing that. And I want, I guess, when I look back to be able to say like that energy was channeled in the right way. I did something that like other people are taking and making it even better than what I did. Um, and I think that's that's what I would want my legacy to be for sure. Cherie, thank you very much. It, thank you. <laughs> I think reading your reading your work in in Forbes, I'm sure I'm going to put links in the show notes. Listening to you speak on stage, having conversations with you, 
it's always it's always you learn a lot and you grow, but it's that authenticity that comes through you. Like every single part of who you are is like this is who I am, this is what I do, this is why I breathe. And it's great to have that as a leader because you know that it's it's not someone who's trying to be something they're not, it's someone who's actually practicing and preaching what they speak in everyday lives. So that's absolutely amazing to see. And it's great to see you in those kind of positions, changing the game, challenging them, being direct, which it needs to happen. It needs, they need, yeah. they need that shake up in, yeah. in those side of things. So yeah. really appreciate you doing that and the good work that you are doing. I can't wait to read the book. Thank you, thank you. And we're gonna have another conversation when that book comes out for sure. <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to chat. Appreciate it, it's everyday leadership. Don't forget, I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com. So check that out. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. Appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership.